kids behind the bus time. From the NHRL studios in Norwalk, Connecticut, this is Behind the Bots, the podcast that brings you the stories of the builders behind the bots. I'm Chris. I'm Luke. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Kyle. And today on the podcast, our interview with Mammoth team member, Brandon Bennett-Young. We'll wrap up the show with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. If you like our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, CastBox, Player FM, and Podbean. You can follow us on Facebook at Behind the Bots and tell a friend. We really appreciate your support. Time for this week's Combat Robotics news. I have one news item for you today. First up, catch live robot combat this weekend in Georgia, Texas, and California. In Georgia, the University of Georgia Robotics Club is hosting an antweight and beetleweight tournament at the school's engineering building this Saturday. In Texas, the combat robotics team at Texas A&M will be hosting a tournament with fairyweights, antweights, and beetleweights this Saturday in College Station. Fun fact, the event is being sponsored by Team Riptide, and rumors are the robot will be on display for people to check out. So uh, if you've always wanted to see a heavyweight combat robot and you were in College Station this weekend, go and check out Riptide. However, the biggest event of the weekend is undoubtedly RoboGames the only other competition in the U.S. that allows full combat heavyweights. The competition had been on hiatus since 2017. It's going to be a four-day event held April 6th through April 9th with more than 50 individual events, including, quote, combat robots, firefighters, Lego bots, hockey bots, walking humanoids, soccer bots, sumo bots, and even androids that do kung fu. Tickets start at a very steep, I cannot believe it, eye-watering $45 each. And I'll be there with my siblings on Saturday. So if you happen to see me wandering around, stop me and say hi. Uh, That's it for this week's news. I'm very stoked about uh, going to RoboGames. I am not stoked about buying the tickets for uh, my entire family. Um, But uh, yeah, I guess uh, I will have an event report for you next week. Nice. Um... Yeah. All right. Um, Let's take a look back at episode 11 of BattleBots, which aired this past Thursday. We saw Glitch fall to 0-3. Overhaul learned the downside of good sportsmanship. Triton win a fight with a broken bar. Captain Shredderator come back from the dead. And Bloodsport return to form in the main event. Kyle, Chris, Lindsay, your thoughts on episode 11? Uh, I thought this was a pretty good one. Um, I enjoyed the 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 rotators fight specifically. I thought that was really interesting. Um, it was also a lot of fun watching uh, really expensive material get shredded um, in the in the um, Star Child fight. Um, yeah, I thought that was a lot of fun. Uh, it was really interesting to see how well that material hold up after getting sliced apart that many times. Um, yeah, generally speaking, it was a nice episode. Like they did a good job. Um, I don't think this was like the barn burner episode or anything like that. We've definitely had some better ones recently, but as far as like an episode to come back and get into the swing of things with, it was okay. I feel like we're kind of like right at that moment from every season where, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, we have the, the breakout stars from the middle of the pack, but yet the excitement really hasn't kicked in yet from the finals. And so it's just kind of like that, you know, last few weeks sprint to get to the point where things really start ramping up again. And this, uh, you know, it was a good episode to kind of collect your breath. And there was actually a couple of really good fights. Um, 
you know, it, it was, uh, it was a good episode all around. I really, uh, thought the blood sport and rotator fight was, was phenomenal. Um, you know, it was, it was highly destructive again. Yeah. The star child fight that is such, just such a cool bot and all the Tegris, it, it, it took a lot of hits, uh, and it was, uh, it was falling apart. And maybe I made the joke a couple of times, you know, to Lindsay, as the thing was getting more and more haggard, it'd be like, kill me, just kill me already. (laughs) But it just, it would just keep trying to thwack. And you know what? I, uh, I hope that this is, you know, they obviously had, um, they were in uncharted territory, bringing a thwack bot to, uh, the 250 pound class, but you know, I think that there's there, there, and I hope that they, you know, continue to build on the idea and refine and, and deliver something for, for future seasons. It was definitely my favorite fight of the night because Mm -hmm. just watching it, like it was doing moves that I did not realize a robot could do the way that its wheels was like making it invert and flip and, it was still going like a for, you know, entertainment. I have to say that. I know that, you know, um, Brandon probably had wished it had gone differently. Um, uh, but, you know, as a casual viewer at home, like that was really fun. Now, this past week, we had 68 people send in predictions and two people managed to call all seven fights correctly. Those two people were. Christy Fletchrow, and Sean Peterson. Congratulations to you both. The upset of the week was a toss-up between Glitch versus Triton and Rotator versus Bloodsport, with a lot of people guessing it would go to the kids from UC Berkeley and our gold-draped friend from Florida, Victor Soto. Kyle, you scored a very respectable 6 out of 7, alas, falling like so many did, to the Rotator Trap. All right, let's get into this week's predictions with our own Kyle Kroos, starting with the first fight of the night. Kyle, are you uh, prepared? Spiritually, emotionally, uh, physically? Uh, yes, I am 1,000% prepared and ready to go, and I've totally looked at what the fight card is. No, I haven't. I have no idea. You're, I'm going <laughs> to like hear all this raw as you're saying it to me, and that's perfectly fine. Oh, wait, before Good. we move on real quick, I just wanted to say, why does okay. Beta keep thinking that that armor package is going to work against Verts? It literally never does. That's all. Um, <laughs> right, right. I just... It, this is like the second time where they're like, we've made this specially for verts, and it doesn't work. It never works. Mm. Try something new, my friends. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish that we could ask John Reed about it, but um, he refuses to come on the show. So um, <laughs> I guess it's an open. Maybe that's why he doesn't John. want to answer this question. So it is a brilliant armor package, assuming that the vert doesn't also have a fork or wedge or virtually anything, a spork taped to the front of it. Yeah. Right. Right. It's not a great idea. Um, all right, Kyle, uh, you're going to go in here. Uh, so I guess the, these 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 are going to be just snap decisions here. Um, first fight of the night, Lockjaw versus Mad Catter. Your uh, prediction here, two Southern California bots. Ooh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Wow. Uh, this is going to go to Mad Catter, uh, but it's going to be close. Okay. Uh, next fight of the night, Gruff versus Malice. Gruff. Okay. Got to stick with your Floridians, is that right? Uh, no, that has nothing to do with it. They've just been more reliable this season so far than Malice. All right, uh, next fight of the night, we've got a battle between two brilliantly engineered masterpieces of combat robotics, Dragon King versus Doombot. Oh my goodness, what a great combination of bots. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say Doomba again because they actually have like a real weapon that can do damage. 
but I can't wait to see it. This will be great. All right, good. Uh, next up, we've got two of the fastest bots in the field, Claw Viper versus Hypershock. Yes, this is going to be awesome. And Claw Viper is going to win. Wow, really? Yeah, totally. They're faster. Than, that... They're faster. They can. They have a more powerful drivetrain. Um, they're going to be able to get underneath Hypershock. Hypershock's ground game is okay-ish, not great-ish. I think this is definitely going to go to our dear friends. I think it's going to be a yeah. lot of fun. You think Kevin Melchewski is going to finish the preliminary rounds with a 4-0 record. Is I that do. right? Yes, I do. Wow. Okay. Bold prediction there. Um, okay. Next fight of the night. Free shipping versus the big deal. Um, this one's probably going to go to the big deal. Okay. Nice. They got a, big, they got a bigger spin spin. Okay. Um, <laughs> On to uh, my most anticipated fight of the night. Uh, I don't know if other people will agree with me, but uh, Shredder Bro versus Lucky. Oh, man. This is an unlucky turn of events for Shredder Bro. Um, yeah, this one's going to go to Lucky. Wow. Okay. All right. I'm going to mark this down. All right. Uh, <laughs> you're no friend to the team, Kyle. Um, okay, hey. finally. It sucks for you Our, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> and then on to our uh, main event of the night. Sablaze versus Hydra. Um, yo, this is a tough one to call. Okay, first of all, I want to see Sawblaze flying through the air, green flame spinning all over the place as it lands. Like, I need to see that in my life like three or four times. Mm-hmm. Um, but after those three or four times, Jameson Go is going to go back into God mode and he's going to rip this bot apart and break its little candy coated shell. Um, I don't see any world where Sawblaze actually loses to Hydra now that I think about it. Wow. Okay. Um, all right. Well, if you think you're smarter than a Kyle, go to our Facebook page later today to send us your predictions for next week. After the break, we'll return with our interview with Brandon Bennett Young. This week on the podcast, we have a very special first-time guest, Mammoth team member and perennial East Coast builder, Brandon Bennett Young. Brandon holds the distinction of being one of the first builders we ever talked to at an event back in 2019 and is still one of the friendliest faces in the pits. He's been building since 2010 and fighting robots since 2018, spanning weight classes from 150 grams to 60 pounds. You've seen him at nearly every NHRL, and he was a runner-up at March's event with his bot Phenomenon. We're looking forward to learning more about his illustrious career in combat robotics and more in the hour ahead. So welcome to the show, Brandon. Hello. Thanks for having me. Brandon, I am so excited that you're here. Um, I, I want to start off self-indulgently with my own story um, <laughs> uh, about the first time that I met you, because I feel like it's... Um, I feel like it tells people something about you. Like if they haven't met you personally, like I'll kind of just, uh, I don't know, describe the first time I met you. So um, this is 2019, kind of late 2019. And we had done 10, maybe 10 episodes of the podcast. Like we were certainly not a popular podcast at the time at all. Um, it was our first season. I think we had just picked up Kyle and um, we were at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia and we were on the other side of the uh, the the pit pit area tape, and I feel like I I like flagged Ricky. He was he was like announcing, and I was like, "Hey, Ricky, 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 can you can you like get me into the the pits?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, okay, uh, just like kind of go under the uh, the stanchion, you know, like 
come here and uh, and come check it out. And I'm standing there and it's like the first time you've ever like the first time you ever see the pits, like it's just it looks like chaos. Like, you know, I didn't know anybody like uh, I, I recognize like Al Kendall there. Um, but that was basically it. I just looked lost and you came up to me like maybe 60 seconds, like after I've been standing there and you're just like, Hey, like, welcome to the pits. You like, want to see some robots? And I was like, yes, absolutely. Like, thank you so much. And you brought me over to your table, showed me like the inside of your robots, talked to me about them. And I was just a total stranger at the time. Like you had no idea who I was. And it was just the kindest and like nicest thing that anyone had done like for me like up until that point in combat robotics and since then i have seen you do that to so many people like at nhrl if you see somebody who's lost like you bring them over and like kind of talk about their robots um like if i'm in a pit like i don't know pit uh, uh vip tour you know you're like happy to talk to people it's amazing like you are such a welcoming just ray of sunshine and uh you're amazing for that so i appreciate that um and uh i experienced that myself and i will never forget it you know you're the first robot tier that i actually talked to and uh that's seared into my memory forever so thanks well well thank you for the kind words yeah thank you um where does that come from i guess brandon you know like your your like desire to help you know like i feel like when when i when i think about you like i think about like just your desire to show people stuff to like bring them into the sport to like get them excited about robots. You know, can you talk about where that comes from in your personality? Well, every day when I was growing up, my dad recorded the old, the ancient stories of Robotica, Robot Wars and BattleBots and played them for us. We were too young to to really understand them live. Well, at least I was. My older brother, he he knew a little better, but still pretty young. So he did is that the morning before he went off to school, he would show us recordings of it. So I grew up, watching Dissector, Nightmare, Biohazard, Son of Huayachi, we played that a thousand times. Um, and I grew up with the idea of like, okay, these things are really, really cool. But I also knew that it was gone because my dad told me that they were recorded like in 2000, 2001. So I wasn't there to really experience it live. And so when I had access to fighting robots, I met Al Kindle and Nurk at 2008 at um, a robo event called RoboFest in Linthicum, Maryland, not far out of BWI Airport. And they told us about the Franklin Institute event. I was like, okay, it's real. And so in 2010, I went to Moto, saw them, told my family we're doing it. And then I did all this work to get a robot going for the uh, 2010 event, Franklin. And ever since then, my thought was, okay, so I didn't necessarily have the base of BattleBots to show up and be like, okay, I, I know all this stuff. It's great. I have all these connections. I didn't. But I always loved uh, finding the websites, the build reports on it. I read those so much. Um, I figured out ways to try to talk about the experiences. Uh, there was at that point the Delphi forums for NERC. So I used to explore those pretty often, but read rather stuff as well. People in the pits um, showed me a lot of their stuff as well. A lot of them are roboteers that I now get to see. And I'm kind of, it's really cool to me that I'm more like an, on an equal level with them. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And so the way I think about it is, um, what is it? Uh, you want to be the change in the world that you want to see. 
And so with fighting robots, as I've gotten better and better at them, just by doing it dozens and dozens and dozens of times, I decided, okay, well, what I want to do when I first show up at an event, be introduced and get to see all the robots. And someone walks up and says, here's my robots. And I'm just like, wow. So now that I have robots, I can show other people my robots and talk about it with them. I just sort of have the understanding of that'd be pretty cool for them as well. And so um, it's like uh, it's like every day I thank God that there's a BattleBots events to go to. Like when the show came back, that was already like a different level of like, oh my gosh, well, how lucky am I <laughs> that BattleBots came back? But even starting off with local events, um, there was just the inherent joy of being able to both see the robots, share them, and then fight with them and talk all the time to people who can see it and share it with them as well. Yeah. It's like, it's the best part about the community. Like, it's the thing that I love the most about our community, just how welcoming and open it is. Like, engineers, just by nature, like every engineer I've ever met, like, is very curious about the world and also, like, really excited about showing people how things work. And, like, we have a sport for engineers, and, like, it's, like, that transfers over into, like, um, you know, like you can just walk through the pits and talk to anybody about anything that's on the table, which is so cool. Like, I think if, if you didn't come from that community, you would kind of like imagine like, oh, this is like secret. And like, they're going to put like a big drape over the, their robot and they, they're not going to want to talk to anybody. You know, if you're the champion, like, you know, you, you don't want to share your secrets. And it's like, it's not like that at all. Like, you can have a top ranked robot and you can walk right up to the person and just as long as they have time, you know, like they are more than happy to talk to you about like, well, you know, I tried out this battery and then now I tried this battery and now I'm like trying out this one and here's what I'm like testing, you know, and like, and you learn so much like in the pits. And like, when, when I, when I think about that spirit of competition, like that kind of spirit of the community, I, I think about you first. And like, um, just cause I think that you are like, just an amazing representation of that. So um, anybody, I, I'm going to, I'm going to just volunteer you, Brandon, you know, like if you <laughs> see Brandon at an event, like uh, go up and bug him because uh, it's going to be a delightful experience. Um, <laughs> I, um, so you've been in the game for a long time, but like you started when you were just in school, like you were like uh what, like a middle schooler. Like when you started, like you're, you're still a young guy, like 2010, like I'm trying to do the math here. Like how, how old were you? So I was 12 uh, when I began. Wow. That. So actually, it's funny because now it's 2023. So I officially hit the point where I've now had more time with my life fighting robots than before when I didn't. <laughs> so, now, so, now, so now it's more than half my lifetime I've been fighting robots. So I find that's a pretty fun little statistic. Yeah. So what, what is it about fighting robots that like has hooked you now for like more than half of your life? Like why, why is this the sport for you? Well, alongside fighting robots, actually, I did a lot of RC car racing, still do. It's just much lesser now compared to the robots are. And there's a beauty in it because you can have a kit, um, you can have things that are already made, RTRs as they're called, and you can sort of run them. You can tune them a little bit, but a lot of it comes from something that already exists. So a lot of the ideas that come with it generally are made from someone else's mind that you're only able to change a little bit of it. With fighting robots, one, violence, it's just fun. It's just fun to watch. But on two, it's also like, this is entirely custom. Like the thought of taking essentially nothing, going from nothing but maybe slabs of aluminum or plastic, uh, maybe some gears and gearboxes, 
which wasn't even a thing as uh, back in the beginning. Like now it's a bit different because now we have sort of pre-made robot parts now. But before it was like, yeah, man, you find a drill, <laughs> you take it apart, you find a guide and you try to undo it, make it a hub best you can. Um, machine shops, literally uh, like all the machine learning that comes from there, just making something. That was very fascinating because whenever I looked at the RC cars, it was always like, well, I can change the tires on it. I can change the shocks on it. So it can, you know, uh, set compression like that. I can change some handling characteristic of it, but I could never change the thing itself. I could not say that my entry into the event was a totally custom build uh, that was just made by me to do it. Not in the same regard as a fighting robot, at least. It was something that I found particularly fascinating about fighting robots. I could just completely imagine something in my head. And with lots of work and uh, skill and process and training, it becomes a totally new custom thing in the world, made it totally unique. I find that is a very cool challenge to figure out. Yeah. Do you remember your first robot? Do you remember your first fight? Oh, I do. It's seared in my mind at all times. Um, my first fight was with the biohazard toy. Uh, I took it and named, I named it uh, Wedge of Destruction. And I brought it to Franklin Institute 2011, um, actually 2010, sorry. And what I did is I took it and I brought it to the event. I spent the entire two hour ride up from uh, my home in Maryland to Philadelphia, trying to work on it in the car. So I did my best trying to solder new things, gluing things down, and then testing to make sure it spun. It kind of did those things to some degree, but it wasn't great. And then I fought a robot called Waitapunga. Um, the weighted kits that we see these days, this was only the second one ever that Peter Smith had made. And this one had some changes from the other ones. And I remember it because it was very quick. I remember driving it up, crawled center of the floor. He slipped around, he got underneath of it, nibbled away at the bottom and it immediately died. And I was like, well, you know, I learned that that wasn't the way. <laughs> Weta is a different level from Biohazard Toy. But the interesting part about it was in the process of making that biohazard toy, it wasn't the same as just, oh, I stuck a new radio in it and maybe some new controllers. I actually like took it apart. I took the lifting mechanism out. I looked at it. I realized the, the setup wasn't necessarily strong enough to handle the shock. I tried taking RC car parts, putting it in there and working around it. So even though it was still a base of toy in structure, it was something that was still pretty unique and modified to a level I didn't have for my RC, car, my RC car stuff. So it was already very different. And then Wade, it was just like a whole different level of unique. So it was already yeah. pretty fascinating to see it. What is are amazing. Like I like they're still dominant today. Like, you know, you look at Lars, Lars Elliott, you know, he's doing great. Um, and um, yeah, it's uh it's it's pretty awesome. Um I I like when when I think about the leap from fan to builder, like it seems like there's this huge chasm here. Like, so like you're a fan and you love the show and everything. And then like, Oh, I want to build a robot. Like you have to kind of cross that gap by yourself, you know? And like, you have to do a lot of learning on your own. You've got to join forums. You've got to go on the combat robotics group, on Facebook, you've got to be in discord channels, I guess now, and like kind of ask questions and stuff. Um, like how, how was that like crossing the gap for you? Like trying to, trying to, learn everything that you need to learn to like build a good combat robot. Like, um, was that educational process hard? I mean, like, can you, can you talk about what, what it, what it took to, to learn all those skills? 
Sure. So because I was like a middle schooler trying to figure it out, it was already a bit tricky understanding engineering principles. But I also sort of had an intuition of what should happen because of all the RC car stuff. So what I did was I studied what the Ask Aaron um, comment robot sort of Q&A that exists online. Um, a lot of its stuff, particularly back then, things change rapidly now. So it might have some, some bits that may be like a little out of date just because time passes very quickly here. But particularly back then, it was like that was gold. And so I, had to, I looked at that a lot. I remember checking up on it several times. Um, uh, one of the things I did, oh my gosh, uh, back in the day on the mutantrobots.com, Don Hudson's website for his, uh, robots, there was one of the robots he had called Eastie Beastie that was on BattleBots. And what he did was, is he took, uh, the photos and like videos that BattleBots had made of it and sort of the, the process for Comedy Central. And he posted those to his website. And so what I used to do is I found that. I, you know, searched online, searched mutant robots, dissector, found the website, and I did those videos and I took notes on them like it was a lecture. So when he said 4130 chromoly steel, I would stop the video, make notes, 4130 chromoly steel. And then later on, I would Google what's 4130 chromoly steel. And then I learned essentially like a um, steel metallurgy through learning about that. And then he would say, then there's these speed controls and there are batteries, which are doing this and these different motors that do this. And so I essentially had a classic set of notes for, uh, I guess, like a middleweight. Though I had no idea, you know, how this translates to the small bots necessarily. But I got the idea that, okay, it needs these X, Y, and Z components, whether they're scalable or not. And that just became like a frame or a structure. So it became essentially um, like an endless became like a hobby class. It's like, if you took, um, courses in your free time, it's like, you know what? I have some time. I might as well learn second language. It was kind of like that for learning robots at first. And it was that kind of sort of digging of interest, which is why nowadays, whenever I go to events, I try to make an effort to post really detailed analysis of my machines. Because I expect that somebody, or well, hopefully somebody, will look at them one day and be like, okay, so here's how you make a phenomenon, a demogorgon, and all the many machines that preceded them. That's cool. What was your first, like, really good robot? Like, a robot that won more than it lost, you know? Like, how, how oh, long did it take you to, to build, like, a really good, good, like, winning robot? So there's two levels of this. So going back to Franklin 2011, Zach O'Donnell, who um, has done a lot for NERC and made many shell spinners, he won the 30-pound division, and his prize was to get a weighted kit. And so what he did was he saw me, a little kid, and he gave me that weighted kit. Wow. And so that was, the that was the first real robot I had. I called it Playing Crazy when my brother gave me the name. And that one did pretty well because it was a weighted kit. And so on one level, I understood, okay, that was pretty good, but it's not mine. It's still a kit the same way RC cars were a kit. And so I made another machine. It's called El Destructo, basically a weighted kit, but a little thinner and much wider. It was maybe 50-50, but never quite as good as the weighted kit itself was. But in 2016, I made a robot I called Ferocious Mark IV because I'd made many ant weights that died before. And this ant weight holds a special place in my heart because in 2016, I went to Franklin. This robot got second place in the ant weight division in the big wow. arena. And this is also important because it was the first time I fought Jameson because in the fights in semifinals, 
I fought DDT. And I remember very distinctly, he was throwing me, but my robot never died. Um, he bent the lifting arm on it, but I flipped him on his head. And something about his robot made it stuck on the motor so it couldn't drive and took it kind of out and the weapon died. And I was like, wow, Jameson, I got him, finally. That joy did not last long, though. <laughs> but it was a pretty good starting point. So that robot was probably the first one. I was like, okay, this one's solid. And then I made Ferocious Mark V and then six, which is the one I run today. And those robots have consistently done good. Um, Vert Mark V fought at RoboGames 2018, and it did pretty well. Honestly, it only lost a split decision against another lifter that could have easily put in like middle rounds if it won that, because it was just going through people. Even now, I saw the chassis, and it isn't destroyed. And then Mark VI um, is interesting because it sort of feeds off of my Antway kerfuffle. And mm. Kerfuffle is a whole different story because it was made for Leatherbacks as part of the club I have there. And between Kerfuffle and Ferocious, both little lifters, they sort of have like a mutual evolution sort of going in and out. So I changed Kerfuffle, which then changed Ferocious, Ferocious changed, which then changed Kerfuffle, and back and forth. So my little ant weight Ferocious in 2016 is probably the first one I, was, I thought, okay, this isn't totally mine and it's good. It's a solid machine. And then from there, I said, no more of the way to kit. It's excellent. I still have some of its guts probably in my tool somewhere. But this one, it's it's mine. And going on from there, all custom best I can. I um so like so we our first well, what one of our earliest events was Franklin 2019. And then we just started going to basically every East Coast event that we could find. Um and I feel like every one that I went to, I saw you there. Like, um, like you go to a ton of events, like, and you still are at a ton of events. Like, you're at basically every single NHRL, um, but you also are doing like you know events out in Pennsylvania, events out in you know Maryland. How how many events do you think you've fought at total now? I guess twenty twenty ten to to twenty twenty three. Okay, so I'm gonna have to do the math in real time. It's gonna be kind of fun. So before NHRL, which was, you know, about the plague, so let's say 2020 backwards, there's mm-hmm. roughly four events a year that I was able to regularly attend. There was Franklin and Moto, the two NERC events. Mm-hmm. There was Bob Last in Northern PA. And then there was Penbots in Harrisburg, which I went to once or twice. So for about, oh my God, gosh, it's a long time to put it like that. I would say for at least six years, it was those four events consistently to some degree. That puts it, what, six times four, 24. And then for a couple of those events, I think 2018 or 17, at least 18, then I started going to Robo Games in 2018 before it died. But now it's back, so it's fine. And then Robot Ruckus in 2019. So at least two more to that. So at two more years, so that's four plus four. So that gets you, what, 24 plus four? 28, 32, plus 2, 34. That's at least 34 events between them. Then the plague happens. There's Moto in that February, right before everything shut down. So 35. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. Uh, that was like that was like the early early hours of The Walking Dead. You know what I mean? You're oh just my like, gosh. You're like, like uh, no, no one's wearing masks. Everyone's coughing. Um, yeah, like, should we be here? Like, I remember that. And then, like, yeah. everything shut down, like, a couple of weeks later. It was just wild, you know? It was a week later, Luke. Yes. Literally the next week. It was so close. I remember actually talking to 
as either Peter or Don, both from Huge, and saying, you know, I'm hearing about this thing in China. It's not not great. I, I think it's going to come over here at some point. And they're just like, yeah, man, at least we got to know. I'm like, you're right. At least you got to moto. <laughs> that was it. I was like, yeah, man, that was it. That was the event. And so, uh, oh, gosh, I'm including Leatherbacks events. That's even more, but that's right later on. Um, so then at least in 2020, so we had Macro. Yes. And so Macro, before the events of COVID happened, I actually met with Macro's leadership because I began Leatherbacks. And then I talked with them about explaining that because part of the dream for Leatherbacks actually included having open events. But that was a harder thing to do. That's more for later. Um, so Macro ended up hosting outdoor events in 2020. I remember and so that. we did. Did a few of those, but pretty rare. Yeah. So we did some of those. Fortunately, no one got sick. The masking, the outdoor distancing worked like a dream. So that was pretty good. Um, that was probably, what, two or three more events. So that puts us at almost, what, 37 now or something like that. And then 2020. So then 21. That was when I began NHRL. And NHRL, I think I've been, like you said, to almost all of them since then. I can only name the two new bots events I haven't gone to because all my bots are old and the one event in July because um, it was around my birthday and my parents wanted me to be home because they thought I was traveling <laughs> too much. So, so, um, so probably what, like five or six NHRL events in that time. So 37 plus five, let's say 42. And then again, probably in 22, there's at least seven there, something like that. So it's probably at like 49. So at least 50 events. Wow. And that's not even including the smaller events that I've um, gone to. I'm just not thinking about either. So at least 50 events I've gone to since 2010. And then a couple of smaller ones probably put it closer to 60. That's wild. That's wild. You're like, you're, you're, you're one of the probably longest running veterans. Um, certainly like one of the most prolific, like builders definitely on the East coast. Like, and that's huge. It's a very small group that have fought 50 plus events um, locally, which is just massive. Um, I, I was so happy to hear when you got to BattleBots, you know, like with the big deal. Um, can you tell us more about like your experience, like that, that first season of BattleBots, like actually stepping into the building, seeing this thing that you had been obsessed about since you were a little kid? Oh, I'm actually going to put the intro story of that too to make it even better. Because in one of those macro events, uh, Bunny and David, they came to play and they brought Isaac's robot, which was bought, made by Isaac Mullers, and uh, Minnie Malice. And I had my kerfuffle. Ah, kerfuffle. And so kerfuffle ended up fighting and beating both of them. They got the title. And I was like, yes. And so so once kerfuffle did that, and they did well, um, I remember Bunny and David said, hey, you know, we know people who need help for BattleBots coming up, particularly E-Man and uh, Big Dill. And they said, would you like to be on the team? And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, we, like, you've been around a while. You've done things. So you need more people. Would you like to do that? And I was like, oh, my gosh. So I ran out, called my mom. I didn't even tell her about the fight winning and any of that. I was like, BattleBots. And they're like, oh, my goodness. So planned around that. So um, because Big Deal's based in Seattle and I'm in Maryland, obviously, a lot of the stuff I could do is just remote. But when I did get to meet everything, go up to BattleBots um, in 2020, oh man, what a world. The robots themselves, I've seen heavyweights because of Robo Games in 2018, but the level of 
hit size in BattleBots, the level of talent at BattleBots, the level of terror at BattleBots, because you know what these machines can do, different level, particularly for some of them. Um, the only ones I had good grounding on was, well, one big deal, because I'd seen the cat of it at least, but seeing it in person was already a different story. But Toro Maximus to Minotaur is probably the most jarring one, because I remember in Robo Games, Toro Maximus shook the building because of its drum. And I was like, that's 30 pounds lighter than that one is. And that one nearly uh, beat Bite Force in the final. So that one's definitely scary. So when I was going into the event, I was automatically floored. And then, of course, the wildest part, you're meeting all these people. Some of them I recognize. Some of it's like, oh, I know who you are. You're, I've seen you in the East. Cool. <laughs> I'm seeing you again in the big show. And the other ones, it's like, that's John Reed. That's Donald Hudson. <laughs> I haven't seen them since I was like 10. And that was on the television where they never saw me before. So that was just a wild, wild experience. Because on one hand, you have to understand that these are the people you're about to fight. So at any time in BattleBots, I had to understand the fact that I would likely have to fight these people who I had just seen dominate on the highest possible level. Some of them since my childhood. And on the other hand, you also are like, but it's also like childhood fame right there. So you're still just over the moon with excitement seeing all of them. And a lot of the times you're just asking yourself, okay, how do I not look stupid in front of them? While at the same time thinking, I absolutely want an autograph. So, <laughs> so the two are always sort of bounce around your mind. So the BattleBots dream was, was profound. And I think it was just incredible that BattleBots is even there. Um. You're a Maryland native, and you know. Then the next season, you join your local Maryland BattleBots team with our beloved Ricky Willems. You know, everybody's favorite NHRL announcer, um, and uh, you know, just all around great, great builder. Um, how did how did that change? Like working on a team that was in your your home state. It was. It was interesting because I had seen Ricky around before. I remember he actually hosted an event, I believe, January 2018, uh, called the Frozen Fracas in Timonium, I think. So I'd seen Mammoth, and I think in the 2019 season, I was I attended one of their watch parties for one of their fights. So I definitely had interacted with, um, with them to a degree. But the difference was that it was still a little distant because I you know, obviously wasn't working on the team at that point. A lot of big deal was still remote, so I couldn't physically work on the robot in any regard. But with Mammoth, one of the huge differences is that by being there, not only did I now have this experience of like, okay, now I see why BattleBots is painful to a different level. Besides just like the two weeks of filming, now it's like, okay, now I have to refine it. But you also had like the, the sense of scale change with Mammoth in particular, because I like there's a lot of lessons learned with Mammoth, and that's like a, that'll be its own story down the line too. But with Mammoth, I remember thinking to myself, "Okay, this is like massive compared to my little beetles and ants that I had made to this point. Even the twelves and I'm thirties uh, that I had tried to design still were just insignificant to this six foot machine that was as tall as I am. And so when I began working on Mammoth, uh, the motor scale was different, the battery scale was different. The hardware was different. Like now I'm holding half inch bolts. A half inch bolt has some mass to it. Like um, like a 632, 440 bolts 
they're almost insignificant in how you feel them. You put that in your hand and you're like, well, I know there's like a little thing there, but it takes no effort to hold it. With a half inch bolt, you're like, okay, this looks like hefty. And there's like 50 of them per se in a robot. And you just get this different sense of like, this is what beef, <laughs> this thing could like handle you if you had to. The small ones are like, it's cute. <clears throat> My little lifters, they're like little toys. But this one is like a man-sized in many ways. And so uh, having a mammoth in person to regularly go to and work on was such a difference in scale, but so much more lessons learned in terms of the work going into BattleBots. That actually affects a lot of things going down the line, <clears throat> both with my small bots and future um, uh, big bot plants too. So I was already like a huge learning. Awesome. I want to get to the big bot plans, but first <laughs> I want to ask you about the Leatherbacks team. You know, um, so <clears throat> you're an engineering student at University of Maryland, uh, recently graduated, of course. Congratulations! Yay, um, you. <laughs> but um, you know, you land at University of Maryland, um, and tell me like the process of like starting up the the Leatherbacks. Like, what what what, what was that like? Leatherbacks founding. Okay, well. I had already been going to Maryland for a bit, and I had already been working at a place called Terrapin Works. They're the primarily primary en engineering resource on campus. They're sort of the the base which everybody connects to in order to make things. So we've made stuff relating to um, cut, uh, what is it, mechanical professors, different departments, as well as people like certainly like um, NASA, who also stuff with Maryland as a whole. We make parts for them too. And so when I had my little robots, people would go around and they're kind of like, this is really cool. And I'm like, yeah, that's why I'm working here so I can build more of them. And so <clears throat> a couple of them were thinking, okay, this would be a good idea for a club. I already had the idea for a club because I realized two things. Um, one, the FSAE team, uh, Terps Racing, that's on campus, they get a lot of support, support that fighting robots need because we consume them way too fast. And so if I could sort of funnel Maryland resources towards building that, that'd be perfect. Because imagine a world where I don't, don't have to pay for my own robots anymore. Now it's just part of my education. That'd be perfect. Um, so when I began Leatherbacks, uh, I had two, two support, two good friends, uh, Rowan Chatterjee, Chinmay Sebek. And what they did is they helped establish um, sort of the constitution for the club. They reached out a lot, talked to um, people in the engineering, in the engineering community, but at the same time, it's a case where, um, you know, how can we organize this correctly? And so um, in my case, what I did is I talked to the engineering sort of staff, our professors. And I said, hey, we want to design a fighting robot community or club, sorry, where we can take these students and teach them hands-on learning. Because a lot of things that we did in class seem very, very ethereal in their purpose. Um, we knew that it's important to code. We know, we know it's important to say things that are, you know, generally important related to engineering. They didn't have any sort of concreteness to it. But instead, with these robots, like, they know what's going on. When you punch something, it hurts. And when that robot is taken apart, like, it's something serious. I think that's part of the big learning there. And so... We started first off with Professor Hex. That's a robot that um, I still have now because I believe the students need like a new base to build off of. They want a robot that they know implicitly 
but they don't want to build off something they never knew. And so Hex competed for a while. Famously, it fought Seth in Division. It, it, his first robot got killed by it, and I felt pretty good about that. <laughs> Though he's always tried to kill it later on. It's like a good test level there. So a little rivalry there. It's pretty nice. From there, I made a robot called Hubris. Hubris was essentially a 12-pound SME. That one failed horribly. Its name was called Hubris because they waited too long to work on it. Um, but at the same thing, at the same time, they still had a lot of ideas of what could work, but not exactly sure what to do to make it really good. And so what we wanted to do is make a featherweight, a 30-pounder warlock. And so the first ideas for that were to make something that's really complex. Like the first idea was actually to make a full body drum the same way that um, Luke's doing now with his 30 pound shuffler or like axe backwards. Uh, I realized that they had no idea what they were doing. So what I did was I actually put a quick vote, which doctor, which doctor, but small. And fortunately in the democracy prevailed and I won. And so they did not do a crazy, stupid idea. They did a sensible one first. And so that robot became sort of like the crowning center of other backs. And so that's the open combat side of it. And Warlock Story, NHRL. Just watch that and you'll see what's going on. For the other half of it was the plastic ants, which are one-pounders made primarily of plastics. And this is where Kerfuffle comes in. Kerfuffle was my entry. I loved lifters. Ferocious did pretty well at Franklin 2016. So I thought, let's make a plastic version of it. Um, that robot ended up doing very well against essentially a group of entirely spinners. Because I wanted to do is not kill them because I want them to learn. But at the same time, I knew that they never thought of the simple fact of what if I touch you on your side? What do you do? You're stuck. And so with Kerfuffle, it was, I called it a compassionate, ro compassionate robot because I didn't try to kill them. I tried to teach them. And so with Kerfuffle, I learned, I demonstrated a lot of the basics of it. And to this day, they still work on one pound robots first. They have internal competitions uh, on Maryland Day, which is like the big uh, thing for the state. We call them SCRAM, Showcase of Comet Robotics at Maryland, where we show off the robots uh, as part of the sort of larger Maryland program. And for the past couple of years, um, though broken by COVID, of course, we had people showing up and saying, I would love to do this. Oh, my gosh. And that was a beautiful case where I could tell people in the community, hey, this is how you do fighting robots. And this is how... You get interested in it. And the university loved it because this was perhaps the best display of Terrapin Works' abilities to make stuff. If you look at Warlock, I could tell you like three amazing different manufacturing processes on it. And you can look at it and you can see it. You're like, that metal is shiny. What's that one do? What's this big spinny thing in the center doing? What happens when it works? And you show them NHRL and you're like, ah, that's what happens, Jade. Um, and so when you're looking at that robot, it just became a beautiful demonstration of it. And the goal for Leatherbacks, with all of this in mind, was to essentially create a Maryland circuit where fighting robots happens in my state. I loved going to competitions in Pennsylvania, um, Florida, California, and other states in the, um, in the East Coast. But those are such a long drive. And macro is like 45 minutes. <laughs> and I love being able to just casually go to a place and just enjoy fighting it. So with having a place that's so close, particularly my university, which had, you know, massive buildings, a machine shop, a stuff in it, of course, we could build an arena um, for club funds and do open combat. We could create a Maryland scene of fighting robots. 
And, you know, fortunately, I have not had to, you know, lean on that too heavy. Macro has done an excellent job of stepping into that as well. And that as well is also pretty cool because I know, I know the people in charge of that. So I saw like all the connections there. Um, but it uh, built upon the idea that I think NHRL is going for, which is make Comet robots more accessible to everybody, anywhere, particularly in your local area. Because as cool as it is to go far away, having it close, supported by, you know, healthy amount of funding, guided by particularly students who can really learn from it, you know, their knowledge in making something goes towards the future. It's a very powerful tool and it's probably the most fun way of learning it because I'm not trying to do something and force myself to enjoy it. It's something I want to do implicitly. And if you want to do it naturally, you're going to want to put more into it. And as you put more into it, it grows. And then you have people passionately building cool stuff. Um, speaking of college, you know, you recently graduated. Uh, congratulations, of course, again. Um, and now you're working as an engineer. Can you tell us more about uh, your, your day job and uh, what you're, uh, I guess, engineering uh, on your uh, nine, nine to five? My nine to five, yes. So my nine to five is working as an aerospace engineer. So I work at the Eaton Corporation in their aerospace division um, in their static seals. And so what that means is not the animal. It means more of the connections. So if you think about an airplane, right? You have fuel, uh, different types of air moving through it. You know, you have the air from the externally that may be going through it over the wings. You want to keep things sealed up. If you have fuel going through it, different mixtures, you want those sealed as well, hydraulics, etc. So what I do is I create the, well, I work to create little seals. I designed them. They're very thin pieces of metal, but because when you bend metal, it gets incredibly strong because of precipitate hardness. So as you squish stuff together, the harder it becomes, stronger it becomes. <clears throat> what I do is I design these to fit in many applications. So you have these little pieces of metal that are made of various different materials, some proprietary, some more common, and you put them in a variety of places. Some that are used in, like I said before, airplanes. Some are used in things like lasers, where you need to have uh, near vacuum state to make sure there's no sort of air mixing with the, the light to create sort of any sort of problems um, and other sort of varieties like that. And what those applications do is they're everywhere, but they're very, very tiny. So my nine to five is a job that's in fact opposite of what I do for fun because I build robots with many, many parts and my job is building a single part for a very specific reason. I, um, I, I've, known a couple of aerospace engineers and it is really interesting how um specific the job is because every single like once you have something that's like hundreds thousands of pounds in the air um you know moving defying physics uh you know like these individual components are incredibly important um like i had a uh, i had a roommate um, one time who worked for a company and the only thing the company did was build the explosive bolts on the space shuttle that like would explode and then like the uh the, the fuel tanks would kind of fall away back to earth um and they, they had built a massive business just making explosive bolts and you're like how many explosive bolts can you possibly sell in a year like how much are they and like but it was the one thing that they did um you know like i have a i uh, my um girlfriend's friend um uh, from college her whole division, like there are multiple, multiple people, huge, like just a chain of command. All they do is the helicopter, like latch, like on the door. Um, 
at Sikorsky and there's like dozens and dozens of people who just work on the latch because obviously if the latch opens up, everybody gets sucked out, I guess, um, or blown out of the helicopter. It's like really interesting like when you kind of break it down because you're like, there's tens of thousands of parts on a helicopter and like every single part has tons of really smart people focused on just absolute perfection of that part. It's just fascinating. I find it fascinating. Um, so no, yeah, that's... It's, yeah, it's it's a case where the less that you have to think about what I do, the better. You have to ask yourself, will the SEALs work on this airplane? Will there be a bomb going off because of the fuel yeah. mixture? That's a yeah. concerning thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Like, there's just no room for error, like, at all. And, like, especially with, like, with anything aircraft-related, like, there are all these... Um, redundant systems where it's like if one thing fails then there's this other thing that like comes in um and i don't know i just i feel i feel safer just knowing that uh, there's great engineers that are working on all of these individual parts um so that's cool and uh so i guess like you know you're in aerospace uh i, I mean i already know the answer to this question but uh, i think <laughs> the people should know too like where where do you want to like eventually take it like what kind of engineering are you interested in ultimately Oh, my dream is to work at probably NASA, NASA Goddard. I live like five minutes from it, so I drive by it every single day. So whenever I go to work, I'm just like one day. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things I've loved since being since I was very, very young was first space shuttle. I think everybody got captured by the imagination when you saw the plane going into space, coming back down from space. It's even more insane. But the way I connect it is obviously the shuttles are retired now and SpaceX is doing a different thing. But I think about it in relation to like the rovers, like the Curiosity rover is much bigger, more complex than a fighting robot, but it has to be incredibly resilient. You cannot just leave it on a different planet and expect it to just be, you know, like, whoops, I guess you have to like fly out and fix it. Like, no, when I put a robot in the arena, it has to just work. If it's dead, it's not coming back. At that point you tap out, match is over. So I thought of those as very similar uh, veins if I want to, you know, sort of go on my engineering career. So space is very cool. And making strong robots in space, I think, is one of the, the big goals I want to head towards. That's so cool. That's very cool. Um, I'm going to turn it over to the listener questions first. But first, I want to hear um, your thoughts on NHRL. Now that you've done like dozens and dozens of events, all up and down the East Coast, NHRL appears, and uh, it's like, I don't know, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, I guess, you know, for uh, for builders. Uh, for people who haven't experienced it yet, you know, uh, for people who haven't, like, lived up in the pits like you have, you know, um, and seen it grow, I would love to get your thoughts on it. Like, good, bad, um, ugly, uh, wonderful, you know, like, basically, <laughs> as a builder, your thoughts on, on NHRL. Like, I'd, I'd love to just hear them. NHRL, I remember watching the finale with um, Droopy in 2020, and I thought to myself, this is already a very solidly produced Beatle event. I thought, okay, so this has excellent potential in terms of being what other events should be, which is like many TV shows. You can create a whole season out of it. Bugglebots was probably the best example I thought of next to it. Um, but when I arrive in 2021 and we're given not just an area, to fight robots at a set location, which is already pretty incredible. Every event I'd been to beforehand was uh, something else which has happened to host robots. This was already a sand robot place. I saw 30 pound arena and I thought, okay, 
this this I'm I'm enjoying because the 30s and 12s are where I love to hang out even more than Beatles just because the amount of energy the output is just higher you know even before any sort of logistics come into it they just hit hard and it's just fun to see um, I see the museum so I see a first bit of robot showing up I think Sharko was the first I saw and then more than came afterwards along the line. I thought, genius, this needs to happen to show people perspective. Because I remember first seeing heavyweights at Rural Games, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, that's a different size than I thought they were. I'd grown up watching these things on TV all my life. I'd even seen builders standing next to them. But I'd never actually comprehended this in relation to a beetle weight. This is cool, because if someone needs to know how to weight the two, there you go. The presentation of a basically a production like BattleBots was already something I thought, okay, this is already like the plus, the S, the S tier level of like, okay, this is going to be an exceptional thing. And so they fought the robots. Uh, the crew was solid. They had a procedure about how we're going to do things. They're more creative. I think the use of an active weapon being mandated was a necessary thing. Um, I know in my own story, like I never liked having just a pure wedge. That's why even though wedge bots worked, I tried to make a lifter because at least it was safe, but still active. So in the NHRL doing that, I thought necessary change too. Maybe small events that are much more local can keep wedges, but uh, production definitely need active weapons. Um, and then throughout 21 and then to 22, I remember seeing both the level of staff increase, the seating area increase. We had like a VIP area and I thought, okay, this is approaching like it's like BattleBots, but it's more containable, sort of more relatable than BattleBots. BattleBots is still a TV show with massive heavyweights that are larger than life and people wearing costumes and having a Farouk intro. But NHRL is a event through and through. You have your fights, you have your brackets, you have everything, etc. But it's built up to a degree that allows for growth. And I love that about it. So I thought, okay. That means that now somebody can look at this and not just say, this is a cute oddity. This becomes a true entertainment source. And I thought that was necessary to create a stability, a long, a lasting stability because BattleBots only works in its upper level vacuum of being a TV show. You could not casually show up with a heavyweight, even Rusty to its own degree still has to do a fair bit of work on it. But, um, Having NHRL with small robots still having quality means that now somebody can fight there, of course, and enjoy it and turn, tune and learn, tune and learn from their robots. But now you also have the chance to re, re, uh, rebroadcast this and have somebody learn from what they're watching. I personally love having the ability to rewatch my robots in a quality presentation and think to myself, okay, I can see different camera angles. I know where he got me in this shot. I personally rewatch BattleBots and other YouTube um, broadcasts of NHRL and other things all the time, reviewing tape like football, because I want to understand what's happening in the middle of fights. So that way I can plan for it later. Um, the commentary, very fun. You all, very fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, the atmosphere was excellent. The synthwave vibes in particular, I was just like immaculate. I just, more of that, please. It was so good. Not anything against the current branding, but like, man, that was, those are those some pretty good. Um, and then having sort of this multiple events per year. And that was the biggest game changer because rapid evolution is how you get robots good. Because in the same time of a single year, 21 for me, I 
had made robots stronger than the bots had made at Modo. Because between Franklin and Modo, you have most of the year just sitting on it. And with the tools I had at my college, particularly, I still had a lot of time where I was just sitting on a robot. Like, okay, I can think of an idea. I can even build it. I could take a full month and change just sitting on the robot. And I would still have like seven months to go between like February to October. Um, and I would just, you know, not give a chance to relearn really about it. Best I could do, kick something around like trash or um, a cardboard box and see what it does. Um, if I was really feeling bold, you could like throw it off a table and see if it breaks itself, which generally they would because, you know, I'm learning because there wasn't a chance to test it anymore. But when I had the ability to design up a robot, build it, and come back within a month and change, that means that now I can create robots and refine them in real time, which was excellent because now you also have a goal. You have a finals. You have something to look forward to. This isn't just like, that was neat anyway. You thought, okay, I now have an impetus to desire to innovate my machine. Uh, if Demogorgon gets beaten by four beetle weights and, you know, punched through the head by a miniature star child, I now have a reason to care that it got beaten up by a miniature star child because that means that it didn't qualify for the finals. I want to qualify for the finals. I'm going to bring it back. I'm going to look at that fight over again in the good quality, listen to commentary, you know, enjoy it while I'm doing it. I'm going to notice what went wrong with it. I'm going to reach out to builders who I you know, met at the event because you meet a lot of builders at the event because everyone's there. And I would learn what to do with it, bring it back in a month. Did it win this time? It did pretty good. It qualified. Good. Now I want to make sure it wins. <laughs> and now I'm just going to keep bringing it back again and again and again. And so when you get to like 22 and the stakes are raised, you're like, wow, I love this even more. Now I can donate to charity. Like now I can do good while beating up my toys. Now you just have a whole evolution there. And then the museum increases. You have your personnel increases. And you're thinking to yourself, this is like a walking and talking miracle happening every single like month and a half. I loved it. Love it currently. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, and you uh, you qualified like what uh, four weeks ago, three weeks ago. So uh, that's pretty awesome. Um, <clears throat> you get to kind of chill, I guess, for the rest of the year and just keep refining, which is which is amazing. Um, and I am waiting for your dumpster moment. Like it is, it is on the horizon. Like uh, uh, you're getting better and better. So I am uh, just stoked, stoked to see see your progression. It's like it's so great. Um, I'm going to turn it over to uh, to Chris, Lindsay, and Kyle. Uh, they have some listener questions here from Discord, um, but this has been fantastic, and I just so appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Hello, Brandon. Hola. How are we doing? Uh, you know, I'm on a podcast. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to kick things off uh, with a question here from huge team member Joe Dorfler, who starts with uh, some some great questions, but writes first, since 2016, it's always seemed like Brandon was at every single competition around Pennsylvania uh, while bringing a different or updated bot each and every time. Uh, a few questions. What's your most memorable moment from your early competitions? Let's see, from early competitions. So I already sort of mentioned when Little Ferocious survived DDT. So I remember, particularly because I know who Jameson was, how important that was to do it. That's already sort of probably one of the earliest ones. But beyond that, probably the moment where 
I think I got roofed by, I think it was Ripto and I think Motorama like 2014 or 15, something like that. I remember I had this little robot called New Fear. Um, it was a simple little like lifter beetle weight bot put together with polycarbonate, Neutron W. It was very simple, very humble. I fought Ripto, I'm pretty sure. And I remember getting launched to the ceiling and I thought that's really high. <laughs> he just tore me apart like really fast. And that went very violently. But at the same time, I had to respect it because the closer I looked at Ripto, the more I understood, okay, this is pretty legit. Like I have to think about things going into it. I can't just slap it together because the more I sort of understood what went into that level of um, resilience, strength, and uh, power, that sort of drove me to make a better robot too. The next two questions. So this follow-up question from Joe Dorfler kind of ties into the next uh, question from uh, Alan Belkin, who uh, is from BattleBots to Horizon and Axolotl. Joe writes, though, what's one of your favorite robot designs to date and why? Over the years, you've always brought these neat designs to every competition that you've gone to. So I think that Joe just kind of wants, wants to know, you know, what uh, is your favorite robot design? But uh, Alan Belkin from Horizon, uh, as well as NHRL Skyline, asks, you've built a lot of robots. What are your favorite three uh, and what is your favorite fight from each of those uh, three bots? Okay, so my favorite three robots. So I want to preface this by saying that I'm going to actively not just tie to my NHRL robots because I want to make it a bit more diverse. So I could easily say Phenomenon, Demogorgon, and Fracas because they're just, you know, they're just solid. Uh, and a lot of them have good fights, particularly Phenomenon when it's fought against like uh, Megatron and recently uh, other fights against like Tsunami. But the three fight, the three robots that are most interesting to me design-wise were actually some of my oldest machines. So way back in 2011, I had this little toy called a catapult. Um, it was a simple machine. Well, simple. It was a toy that had two arms that came over the top. <clears throat> and what they did is they were sort of on sort of a snail shape. So what you do is as you run up the robot, you drove it straight, you'd actuate the arms. And the arms, in concert with the speed going forward, elevated the robot. So it essentially dumped itself in the air a couple of feet and it crashed back down to the opponent. So back in 2011, in the Mantis weight division in Bot Blast, I fought against a robot called One Fierce Bushwhacker. Uh, and that robot was a serious machine and mine was a toy. So he tore me apart. But it was interesting because I could hop over him and sort of land on him. I could, I could essentially avoid his undercutter by hopping over and sort of trying to land on him instead. I thought that was a very interesting idea going forward because I really wanted to have a machine that could sort of avoid. I thought that was really cool. So that comes back later on in uh, my other robot, Caddy Wampus. Caddy Wampus, my probably favorite robot I ever had was, or is a three pound sportsman beetleweight. So it is a robot that has a rear flipper but what it does is kind of like a waggle stick you see on the side of a robot. But what it does is it tilts the robot sideways. So instead of trying to launch it forward or backwards, like a Hydra or even Defender, um, it tilts the robot sideways. So what it does is essentially try to get you on top of that robot and tilt you on your side, like a sideways, sort of like a, like a trap door or something like that. And the idea was twofold. It was able to both escape and potentially attack you while still defending its weapon entirely. And so at the latest macro event, um, I, fought a robot, I fought against the robot called Airmail, which was actually a little pneumatic flipper, so kudos to them. And in that fight, 
a couple of things I noticed was I was, I was able to get underneath of them and flip them over because the robot tilted with them. So even though they tried to sort of aggress me, my arm was still totally free in the back. So I could get fully underneath of them, throw myself and them. And then whenever they tried to pin me against the wall, I threw the arm, it threw my robot all the way across the arena, but it self-righted itself. And I love that because it's the same sort of escape idea. And then probably my third robot I really liked was a shell spinner named Catapult that I came back to Bob Blast with in 2014, I think. And it fought against Blackout, which is one of the Dorfers bots, and they destroyed it. But it was a fun learning bot because it was a shell spinner like Gigabyte in Valdem. And I learned a lot, both in terms of mechanical strength from it, because you know even though it had its flaws, it was still much stronger. Um, I had custom parts made um, for it. Um, Zach, Zach O'Donnell made the little friction wheel I used to spin up the, disc, the shell. And I learned about hardness very fast because my shell was unhardened steel and theirs was a hardened tooth. And it turns out that hardness matters because they bent all the teeth on that thing. But it was all three of them were learning. So two catapults and a cattywampus were pretty fun. That's, I love the I love the stories. Um, if you didn't notice, I literally had a bowl of popcorn earlier. Uh, it's just, <laughs> I listen to you go on and on all day. It's fantastic. There's so many stories. Oh my gosh. A couple of uh, light lift questions. Maybe I don't know. Uh, this next question from Brendan Steele, aka Business Cat and builder of the beloved Ram Plan, would like to know, Brandon. How do you feel about Luke always calling your bot Demigorgon instead of Demogorgon? <laughs> oh, that was funny. Um, so Demogorgon, uh, let's see. When he called it Demigorgon, I remember everyone started saying that. Demigorgon. Um, I loved that because people would um, always quote that at me. Um, and it made it more interesting, sort of like a sort of catch in the head. It was tricky, though, because I'd always use a shorthand demo. just the first four letters of it to describe it. And everyone's like, do you mean Demi? And it's like, no, no, it's Demo. It's Demo Gorgon. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 no way. And so there's there's like a little bit of confusion there to try and describe the robot. So I found that funny. Um, it is always funny to me when people sort of bring that up though, because it's like, uh, it's like, okay, this is the different pronunciations effect on people. But uh, I find it endearing because uh, even though it doesn't sort of match the, the writtenness the phonetics of saying it that way make it more fun on the lips. Now, I feel maybe partially responsible for this next question. Ryder Liangle has a follow-up. Commentary has also made it impossible to hear about Phenomenon without thinking of it in its uh, Muppets Monomena tune. Uh, are you also cursed <laughs> with this thought? So funny enough, I never ever got the Monomena sort of stuck in my head. Even when I made a Phenomenon as Menomena <laughs> with the sportsman with the sportsman lifter grabber setup. Um, I always use it as a funny connecting though, because I'd always tell somebody, oh, what what do you call your robot? Phenomenon. And they're like, oh, like the Muppets. I'm like, sure, like the Muppets. And that just sort of worked with people. And so I always thought that was very funny. And I think it's very endearing and sort of just like the meta textual sort of like building up the the cults around the robot of like, okay. It's the Muppet name. I'm like, yes, the Muppet name. Of course, of course. And so I find that funny. I enjoy it. Never got stuck in my head though. So that's the good news. I, I just love that it's like, it's, it's, it's a brutal bot 
<laughs> one of the most dangerous ones in the weight class. And then as soon as the name phenomenon is said, it's just phenomenon. <laughs> exactly. It's beautifully subversive because you're kind of like, oh, it must be fun and punches you in the face. And you're like, oh, <laughs> a little different. <laughs> waka, waka, waka. <laughs> All right, I'm going to kick it over to Kyle for a few uh, listener questions. All right, Brandon, so nice to talk to you again. Uh, so th- we're going to continue on with some questions from Ryder Liangle. He has some actual bot-related questions, not commentary-related questions. Thank you for focusing <laughs> on us so much, though, Ryder. We, re- we really appreciate it. Um, all right, I see you've posted some teases of Demogorgon. Is it actually coming back, or was that just related to the testing anti-horizontal setups for Fracas? So the trick with Demogorgon is that robot has always had trickiness balancing out the weapon stack up with drivability. So I know in my case, the way Demogorgon's worked is it used to have a ball on the end of its blade, and that acts like the third wheel because it's always spinning rubby against the ground. So you have the two drive wheels and the blade, but the blade, because of the way it's horizontal, is always pulling it to one side. And during the finals last year, this was particularly rough because um, the first Demogorgon in particular was bet from time fighting all this time. So it ended up making it not level to the ground anymore. So now its bias became much more announced. And particularly the loss to Richard, I thought to myself, okay, they have like no flat wedge. I can probably like punch the front of them really, really hard. And then it just turned itself around and got punched in the back. And I was like, okay, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. I'm sick of this. No more. And then um, I put it down for a while and leaned more into the phenomenon because it's been doing well. Um, and so the trick with Demogorgon is that particularly in that time period, since it's been fighting, I've actively avoided fighting Promheta because I've noticed Promheta has a very nasty habit of bending people's weapons far too much. I remember Zach calling it in an inaccurate bending service. And I thought, oh no. So if he's bent blades thicker and smaller than mine, then I'm very confident that if I ever fought against a bot like Promheta that gained purchase on it, it would bend the blade so far up that it would cut into its own snout, probably into its either controller or battery and set itself on fire and just be murdered on the spot. And many, many times I've sat down with the free CAD and I said, okay, I can make a different type of horizontal undercutter. Maybe I'll change this. Maybe I'll change that. It turns out all those designs have also been played out. Minimizer famously and Maximizer are both famously like the Thagomizer family, where it's just thick, thick weapon or the Maximizer like thick weapon, super long reach, still gets affected by a thick vertical spinner. Hot leaf juice, smaller uh, blade, more stout design still got bent by Promheta. Um, I even fought Blue Cheese, and I got lucky because I took off the ball head of Phenomenon, or sorry, Demogorgon's blade and tilted it down, and it punched the snout instead, which just cratered the whole front of the robot. And I got lucky because it didn't bend the blade, but I actually realized that if it went weapon to weapon with Blue Cheese, it probably would have done that, if not worse, and you know, cut itself with the weapon being bent up so much. And so... I have Demogorgon assembled. The teaser photo I posted is a completed Demogorgon. It's actually sporting an S7 blade I got from Fred Moore of Omega um, back when he made a 12-pounder called DXDDT. 
and it got bent by minor threat. Well, the other ones got bent by minor threat, and the one I have is the one that survived, didn't fight them. But when I look at that, I think to myself, well, it's a working robot, so I want to save money. Student loans are still a thing, and I don't want to get broke too fast. But I also kind of want to move on to different ideas because the current meta is countering me so hard in how I want to fight my machines that I would rather try a more unique idea and sort of expand the potential I have because I have literally dozens and dozens of CADs of almost finished or totally finished robots that I've never seen the light of day yet that, you know, I'd rather try out instead if I think they have a chance to not get killed by a team defective bird. So I will probably fight Demogorgon, but I also half expect it to get retired and then move on. I love the name though, love the branding on it, but it's tricky to have a robot where you already know the top, like probably the top 10 or so machines are all like the hard counter for your robot. So at best you're challenging an event for some machines, but you know that by the end, you're probably going to fight a losing battle, which could result in like catastrophic damage to build up. And it's good to have a 12 pound entry. I like the 12 and 30 pound classes, obviously both of them. I'm just less confident in it. But Fracas, I love Fracas. It only lost, it never even lost. It forfeited a phenomenon, but the glory of phenomenon. So Fracas, <laughs> love that thing. It's going to come back for sure. Probably Same. just run it all year too. Yeah. Um, we it, I, That was like the, the multiple slams. Uh, I absolutely love that bot. Like that was so much fun and I'm so glad that you brought it. Um, all right. So next question for Ryder Angle. Where did you get the idea for the Sportsman Beetle Caddy Wampus come from? Every fright I saw of it was ridiculous, and I loved every second of it. Oh, yes. So <clears throat> I sort of described it First of all, describe Caddy Wampus. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. So describe it a little bit more. So Caddy Wampus is a robot that has the rear, rear weapon. So the weapon moves complete 360. It is uninhibited by anything on the robot. So... That means that the whole front of the robot has a standard sort of fork configuration. I can scoop underneath of them, put them on my body, and then the arm is supposed to tilt the whole machine over so it throws me and the opponent over. And the idea is that I can flip them over as well as I can turn myself at any point in time. So I have videos posted on my YouTube to search the name Cattywampus, Robot, Beetleweight, something like that, Macro, and you can find the fights for it. But the beautiful part about this machine is I thought of uh, I, the inspiration for it came directly because I did not want to make a standard flipper. This is a sportsman class in macro. I thought, okay, there are no spinners. I don't have to worry about being killed. What can I do with the parts on hand? I look around. I have a prop drive 2836 uh, brushless motor paired with an old drill gearbox mounted in some um, 3D printed um, casing. And I thought to myself, this thing has a ton of power. This motor is using the spinners of most three pound robots. And I have a gearbox on it that can handle its level of power. What if I just put this on it and made like a flipper? And I thought, well, I can make a waggle stick flipper, but I didn't want to because I thought a ton of them already existed. Um, I knew it's on the side of the robot. So at best it could sort of just tilt itself sort of sideways, but it couldn't really throw something else per se. Maybe if I had two of them become like Defender, but not exactly the same. So I thought, what if I just put it on the back, just stick straight at the back with a little arm in the side of it, sort of just sort of like a, like a choppy thing on it and see what it does. And I tried it. 
I used my three pounder Phenomena, uh, took its carbon fiber base plate, printed some TPU around it, which took like a day to print because I have Prusa and TPU is a rubber material that takes a while to print. So um, put it together. It's very rudimentary in its shape. It just uses some old titanium forks from my uh, beta weight Super Ferocious um, way back when um, I put in the front of it. And it threw itself like over a foot in the air without even trying. And I was like, this is fun. <laughs> so I ended up bringing it to competition. It fought against uh, notably Lars and Jetlag. Though that was the first fight, so I didn't have a chance to sort of learn how it works yet. But it got underneath of him. It sort of able to sort of, you know, push him sideways a little bit. And even when I lost drive because the TPQ flexed too much, the motor started getting loosened, or the drive motor started getting loose in it, I ended up just launching myself over him in such a grasshoppery way that he had no idea what to do. To see a man like Lars, right? Lars, who we've known is on pretty good NHRL, be utterly confused to see the gears in his mind come up with no answer of what he can do to this grasshopper of a robot just completely eluding him was just a lot of joy, you know? Because it just, it broke all ideas of what does controlled movement mean? What does it mean to be able to um, move your robot around to escape an attack? You sort of think of robot fighting as like, well, if I get pinned, I have to just sort of sit there and wait until I can escape. But this robot has its arm totally free. It can just launch itself away. If I thought about um, how a robot pins you against the wall and sort of pulls your sole aggression, um, he can't do that now. I can throw him and me. He now can potentially get flipped over on his head trying to even aggress me. And I can just escape every sort of a chance he has to control me. And so this little robot kept fighting throughout the day and again, learning it, sort of figuring out how its mechanics work to a point where it got second. And I just loved it. It's, it's just the machine that has such a simple premise of just put an arm out the back of it and give it tons of power and see what happens. It ended up becoming a genuinely fascinating idea, an exploration for more things in the future. That's awesome. All right, so Alex Pick, builder of Zane, wants to know, this is a super specific question. So what sizes of wheels have been on Phenomenon? So Phenomenon has used the Bainbots 2-7-8 inch wheels. These are pretty standard. Uh, Ripperoni also used, or Little Rip now, used them a lot in its time. A lot of other 30-pounders, uh, 12-pounders have used it. It's pretty cheap, pretty convenient. The, issues was, the issue was that each wheel is fairly thin, and I have to use a Bainbots hub on each of the drive, for each wheel on the drive shaft. And sometimes if they aren't loaded exactly centered, they can wear down incorrectly. So there were many times, particularly the end of 21, beginning of 22, where Phenomenon did not drive very well because the Bainbot wheel wore down too fast unevenly and it couldn't move. Even though the robot was 100% functional, the weapon sometimes vibrated itself loose so it could still kind of work, but it didn't work too well. Um, so at final, no, Maybe at finals, I think. I remember Jameson showed me the Robocore 80 millimeter wheels with a half inch shaft that he uses a Megatron. And those things work excellently. Same way that Minotaur, Black Dragon notably, have used them in the big bots. Very similar idea with the small bots. And so since then, Phenomenon's used them and its drive has been phenomenal. <laughs> because it's just consistently had traction because the wheels take much longer to wear down. Extremely grippy, so you don't have to worry about the 
um, shrapnel from the arena, ruining them because they just, you know, they're soft rubber. They just conform around it anyway. And end up becoming this particularly potent drive setup. So it's almost so it's at a point now where it's kind of like having a Megatron type of speed, but you have a weapon that's brutal as it is. And so have not figured out the ground game yet, but Robocore's Robocore 80 millimeter wheels are very effective. I remember Don using them in another disco as well. It seemed to work well for him too. All right, so Ryan Hunter, head of pit control over at NHRL, says, uh, do you have a shelf? for robot fighting memorabilia and if so what are some of your favorite highlights on it i do i used to have the robots on the shelf with them but now it's gotten more full so i had to move them to a different shelf um the number one best thing on that shelf by far has it was july 2020 i think it was 22 i remember phenomenon fought depth charge and it bent its blade it's nice little disc. It's like either three quarter inch or I think a uh, disc bent it because Phenomenon just punched that hard. And I didn't even think about it. But it was funny because it was uh, on my birthday when that happened. And so when Dustin did that, he heard about it and he was like, oh, I have a gift for you. And he gave me the disc. And I was like, that is so, so cool for a birthday gift. And so I have a little shelf now where... The most prominent thing on it is Depth Charge's bent disc because it is sort of like the ultimate statement of like Phenomenon is a serious machine and this is the damage it can punish to another robot. Alongside it, I had parts from um, Four Letter Word from the last event. Um, Nate Franklin gave me the um, bent wedge of Thunder Child when it got obliterated <laughs> being put between two 30-pounders. Uh, I remember Evan Arias, he gave me a piece of Shredder Bro when Demogorgon fought um, waterproof sealant. Uh, it, it's so funny because you don't think about how that undercutter affects beetle weight because the weapon is about the weight of a beetle weight and it just launched him across the box and apparently tore up the H&W. So he gave that to me and I thought that was a very, very cool gift. Um, lots of other things as well. Other pieces of plastic ants I've got, beetle weights I've got. But yeah, the depth charge blade in particular, that was like the the part. I'm so happy to have it. Thank you, Destin, for listening. That's awesome. I love that. All right. Ashley Beckman of Milk Tank fame has some BattleBots related questions. She says, what's the coolest thing Ricky has taught you over the years at BattleBots? I guess you have been on the Mammoth team the longest. So <laughs> Team Captain Ricky, what sage advice has he handed down to you over all these years? Well, being around Ricky, really his life is very much of a big learning, just on a general level. Uh, definitely, particularly <laughs> with BattleBots, but particularly the pointed goal is how to handle tubes. Because when I create my robots, I think of them as solid frame rims, these giant hunks of steel or aluminum welded together or bolted together, and they're just fastened. Like, just make a thick square, very thick square with thick walls, it'll be fine. With Mammoth, it's the first machine I've ever had to deal with where it is mostly hollow in terms of its construction. Those tubes, I mean, it's like about a 16th inch wall of chromoly, I think, and they're very, very strong. And you don't think about them as being as strong as they are for as big as it is. But because of the nature of shapes, you have like a round tube. It takes a lot of force to crunch a round tube because of the uh, stresses being distributed across the area of that tube body. And I was working on Mammoth, and I was thinking to myself, there's no way this machine 
um, you know, in these upper parts of the body that rely on these tubes can remain so strong when hit with a tombstone. And then we fought tombstone and then it survived. And I thought to myself, that's incredible. And so a lot of that comes from working on like uh, cars in particular, who, you know, use tube structures all the time. And that was just an excellent learning because it, it's a different way of building things. And that's sort of where the fun of fighting robots kicks in. Because whenever I'm going around the pits, BattleBots or NHRL or other events across the country, I'm fascinated by how people answer the question, how do you make the thing? And their way of approaching it is just a fascinating insight that I can use anywhere. Because the tubes, like tube construction, incredibly light, used in a lot of places, never thought of for a BattleBot, but clearly effective in a BattleBot. And that's just just fascinating. There, Ricky... It's just a fascinating man that we already talked about before. But I think that sort of revolutionized the ability to, to design things to be stiff and light. Um, yeah, I agree with literally everything you just said. Um, all right, so J- this is the <laughs> last question from Ashley, and then I'm going to hand you over to our dear friend, Lindsay. Uh, so first of all, why is Jackson the best robot dog? And why was it amazing having him in the pits with you? Well... You see, at the core of it, Jackson was the star. You see, Mammoth was the medium to get Jackson to BattleBots. And we all understood this at its core. And we sort of accepted this as sort of the nature of it. You see, Jackson being a professional, when he went into the pits, he was unbothered, focused, in his zone, if you will. Because when he was around all the loud sounds, he's like, I can handle this. When he's on stage and Fruka's calling us in, lights are on him. He's like, I can handle this. And that that's level of professionalism that we all aspire to be. And so when we were in the shop working on Mammoth before BattleBots, of course, we were always just moving these massive things around. And Jackson, to his credit, was like, yeah, I know you're using angle grinder like 20 feet from me. And there's a mill going on like five feet from me, but I can handle this. And we're all glad for it because by the end of it, when we're all sitting down, like Jackson's there, like we can pet him. He's incredible he gave us energy when we thought there is nowhere else to go it was it was a pleasure an honor and a privilege really and thank you for asking that ashley it was it was incredible to reminisce on the days of jackson hopefully more to come (laughs) all right i'm gonna pass you over to Lindsay. thanks brandon i love hearing about jackson jackson is the best (laughs) um (laughs) but we have some questions here from nhrl's community director and wizard of basically all things gil hova um and he wants to know brandon on behind the bots is long overdue uh this is going to be a wonderful episode i have to agree i think this has been um really phenomenal so far (laughs) um if you were to build a meta breaking bot what would it look like well, funny enough about meta-breaking robots, because I've, Ooh, go I've on. spent so much time trying to figure out ways to make meta-breaking machines. So on one level, there are machines that still sort of play the metagame, we're trying to do a different way. So when I look at Phenomenon, it is a machine that 100% plays the meta. Like as Phenomenon evolves, it would just become more and more like Witch Doctor or Endgame in terms of just like forks, big blade, feed kill. <laughs> Like, very direct in it. But Caddy Wampus was one of the ideas going forward of how to make a meta-breaking machine because of the first catapult, the toy, that launched itself in the air. You see, when I thought about uh, machines that can sort of do that, I thought, well, what's the best way to get around a meta-breaking robot? You don't play the meta. So 
this would only be in a very different world where we had some different resources. But I thought of a very fun way to do it. it would actually be like a monster trucking uh, spinner where you centrally launch yourself on top of the other robot and you jam it down. Because instead of trying to play, hmm, maybe I should get to the side of them, which is heavily armored. Even the bottom of machines can be heavily armored if they know you can get there. For like every Sawblaze fight ever, the top plate's heavily armored. But if you're playing a machine, they don't know where it can attack from. You're like, oh, I don't know how to stop this. And I think if you had a robot that did not rely on the ground game, but actually actively went against the ground game to position itself on top of you, that's probably the best way to go about it. Because imagine a world where everyone has to have like inches thick of top plate to try to defend against you. Then, well, funny part is now the rest of your robot's less armored. And so you can still easily feed something into the sides, the back, the robot, potentially. But if you think of like a face hugger, sort of like the Alien series, you claw into something, right? They're on you. Like, what are you going to do? It's stuck on you. It could, let's say you could move around even. Like, what, what can you do if it's grappled onto your chest and it's just able to just like move around to your back or something? Can you reach its back? No, it's just got you. You're just done for. And so you can create a machine that actually actively holds on to you, but because it sort of repositioned itself accordingly, what can you counter with? I can only think of a handful of robots, mainly like the sort of uh, lifters, perhaps the hammer saws even, where they had this articulating arm to sort of wave you off. But the vast majority of the metabots that beat them, like Endgame, even with itself writer, you know, you could just lash on a part of Endgame. It's like, what are you going to do? You can't knock me off now. Now I'm on you. I've got you. And you can barely stop me. And now I will kill you accordingly. And then you stab them and then they die. Because quantum is very... Quantum is beautiful, like the stabby, killy thing. But like having more to lean into that, that's the dream. I would love to see that. Um, All right. So the next one from Gil is, what's the weirdest mechanical failure you've ever seen on a combat robot? And it doesn't have to be one of your own. Let's see. I can almost parlay this into damage because I think the two are going to connect a lot there. Probably the most violent display of damage I've seen in sort of intricacy was when Big Dill fought against Gigabyte. Because in that fight, we didn't really lean heavy on the lifter. We mostly just did the wedge thing. But in that impact, because Gigabyte punches so hard, the gearbox and all of its contents were just all shoved out of place. And when you're sort of trying the lifting arm um, on the controls, you're thinking to yourself, why isn't it going up? I'm hitting the stick. Move, move, move. But internally, what happened? Almost every bearing and sprocket had moved out of the way or been bent by its own torque in such a way that nothing at all aligned again. It essentially went from this clean sprocket mechanism to multiply power from a motor into a few steel mass that you had to like take fully apart to get access to. And when I realized the level of power that a robot has to have to just completely dive in and disassemble your machine, I thought to myself, BattleBots is terrifying. Very, very fun, but oh man, is it terrifying. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it in those terms, it's just, uh, yeah, horrifying. Um, it's kind of above my uh, grasp of <laughs> understanding almost. <laughs> um, all right, so Ian Miller, the builder of Quicksand 2, wants to know, when are we seeing a 250-pound cattywampus, Brandon? Ah, uh, yes. Ah, uh, yes. Cattywampus, the big, the, the giant wampus even. 
the dreams of a big heavyweight. So I guess I was alluding to it earlier. So the way I do robots is I have my own personal machines. So I have my small bots, which do fun, generally 30 pounds or so on down. I then have Leatherbacks, which is sort of my self-larger community. And those are people that are students, generally, that I mentor. And as they're growing, making their own robots, some of them have gone to make their own. Like, remember, Bob Blanson has made a Jordan, right? One little one-pounder uh, as well. And so then I have the Mammoth level, where it's like the heavyweights. And Mammoth and Big Dill together have been the most sincere BattleBots learning experience ever. Because... The thing you don't think about, but the thing that terrifies me the most about heavyweights is all of the back-end work you have to do. Because I realized that the BattleBot schedule of trying to wait on it patiently until everything is confirmed does not work when you're working on a TV schedule because you have to rush that so fast. And the amount of pain and agony I've seen in Ricky's eyes as he wakes up from like a 36-hour like hibernation because he was working like 50 hours straight before that point really lends myself to think, I don't want to be like that. Uh, in fact, at the time of this recording, I haven't registered my other bots at NHRL yet because I want to make sure they're like 100%. because I don't like having to rush them to get them ready. And so for Caddy Wampus, um, I'm doing two things, uh, two different halves of it. I'm one, I'm watching the big events as they go down. Proving Grounds, BattleBots announced, would probably be one of the most obvious opportunities to fight a heavyweight. And I think that's the benefit of their goal. People like me who have an interest in it could potentially go up to that point and try it. But at the same time, I'm fully aware that the work going into heavyweight is huge. So I kind of want to wait and see if it's a solid investment yet. Um, not to wish anything poorly on BattleBots, of course, but if something happens and they're like, I actually got to undo it at some point in time that's really soon, then I don't want to have to invest in that. And next to that is RoboGames. Because RoboGames is like the premier base for so many years for heavyweights to get uh, grown and evolve naturally. So RoboGames, first of all, does well this year. And second of all, comes back for next year. That also becomes a place of sort of proving, proving ground. And then the other half of it is developing Cattywampus itself. Um, I just mentioned the facehugger idea, which is, I think, probably an evolution of a bigger robot. Uh, but funny enough, the next robot class that's probably expands on the idea, but is also cheap enough to do stuff in, it's probably 12-pounders. And that probably puts some strain on how, having a Demogorgon around. So that makes the two kind of at odds there, because I don't want to spend too much money, but at the same time, there's lots of other ideas that I want to try out. So the odds are I'd probably be making rounds through NHRL in the bigger bot classes, 12 or 30, or both, uh, making Kaidiwampai. And then in the ideal world, I'll even be able to expand on that and add some sort of kinetic element to damage something with it. So now you have something that cannot be contained, that has an already implicit ability to sort of get under and control another machine, but also has sort of a destructive element to it. And that takes time. And I'm willing to wait for that because I have no problem working with Mammoth because I love Mammoth. I think its ideas are great. Uh, if anything, I've always like messaging Ricky of like, okay, what can I do in the robot? Because I have downtime. I don't have anything robot related to do on my own bots yet. So I'll just try to figure out stuff to help Mammoth get better. And hopefully those things get instituted in further BattleBot seasons. But at the same time, um, I think the natural progression of any builder is as the deeper you go into the BattleBots world or fighting robot world is to progress sort of in the reach you have. So like in my case, ants, beetles, hobbies, then 30s, 
I made a 60 pounder for Robo Games in 2018. And I would do that again if I didn't have any um, time, had other time commitments that kept me from this year's Robo Games. Um, I want to make heavyweights because they're just fun. They're kind of stupid though, because they cost so much money and the pain I see in managing a mammoth is already a ton. But by, you know, sort of taking my time and doing so, not treating it too seriously, having other events to let it breathe in, to test small bots in, that could lead to a genuinely fun robot. Um, it'd be hard to perfect it into a true robot I believe in to win the BattleBots giant nut one day, even if there isn't some tuning in it. Endgame took a while to get good. Fight Force, Paul competing for years, Ray competing for years, et cetera, et cetera. Tantrum took enormous amounts of work to get good, lots of time running it as well. So if I want a robot that gets to fight a lot, gets to be not just like a neat oddity, but a genuinely fascinating idea to somebody to want to, you know, fight against it, or even just sort of, you know, take the idea and run with it in their own way, then I'm willing to wait the time to make it good. Because I think that if it becomes good enough, then it'll be worth it by so much more. Particularly such like an odd idea. I absolutely love your approach about, you know, how you think about these things. And I think anyone getting into the sport um, or looking to make that next leap, like that is such a, I think, a healthy and good way to kind of look at things and approach um, it. And I think it's very admirable. And on that note, we have one last question from Tom Farkas builder of first drink of the day and positively hysterical um, who wraps us up with a question about the future. And maybe you touched on it. Maybe, you know, maybe you have another idea, but is there a type of bot you've never attempted, but would love to try in the future? Yeah. So there's actually an idea I had sitting at work when I was getting onboarded because I was super, super duper bored. Um, I loved Crushers. I loved Razor back in the day. Still love Quantum to this day. Um, but I also think that hydraulic systems are really, really complex and inherently disadvantaged because of that complexity to a level that doesn't um, suit the current capabilities of things like batteries and electric motors now. And so one idea I wanted to try is sort of a grab hammer. Um, so to think about it, it is... Similar to like a very quick uh, vision of it. Imagine if you took like a grabber, took fracas for example, hold on the other robot, put like an impactor on the end of it and drilled into the top of the other robot. It's a nice idea, but when you get to a certain power level, an impactor isn't strong enough and you don't want to just simply have a, uh, uh, a giant tool on the end of it because they're not made for that. You have to do a lot of re-engineering work to make it work at that point, which is a huge pain in the butt. So the idea is I want to have a lifter that can sort of grab it fast enough and potentially suplex it even because it's something that I think those robots always are fearful of. Quantum is fast nowadays. So, you know, high credits to the Cooper brothers. They do excellent work being seeing Quantum being able to like very quickly grab them to the other machine and then sort of power through it after that is magnificent. But um, the ability to also just use a lifter as a secondary weapon just to flip over very important because if you have another robot or if their top is armored but not their bottom. What if you just happen to suplex them and now their butt's open and their butt has like no armor on it and now I can just go through that instead and it kills them instantly. That'd be great. So an idea was to sort of have um, 
like a hammer setting, like a chisel, like a hammer and chisel setting. We have a motor basically playing the role of a giant impactor, sort of hammering the tooth into it. So the tooth sort of floating that way, spring-loaded. And it goes in the top of the other robot and hammers through and it kills them. And so in the same way, it's able to sort of throw them back. So it would be kind of like an evolution of fracas, but it would need a lot more weight than a 30-pounder because the uh, mechanism is so complex. But I always thought that hydraulics are cool, but not fully utilizing the power level of a brushless motor these days. And if you could make something that has a secondary control approach besides just pin and grab, that makes your fight more interesting because quantum's uh, difficulty of like getting stuck in the opponent and just sort of grappling them around until they can let go to the best of their ability does look cool when you sort of zoom in on it. But if you're sitting back and watching it from like the crowd, you're just like, oh, they're stuck together, let loose. But if I can sort of grab you, like impale you, and then also throw you backwards like an animal, then you're like, okay, I see what he just did. That's pretty sick. And then you kind of want to build off of that more. So that and sort of the Wampus idea are two really good ideas I wanted to try in the future, but they just take a lot of time and patience is key. Well, if anybody can do it, I am very confident that it could be you. So I hope uh, I hope to see that one day. Um, but Brandon, thank you so much for talking with us. This has been such an enlightening um, and wonderful conversation. And so just thank you so much for sharing everything. Um, and we can't wait to see Mammoth again in the Battle Box soon. So hopefully we'll, we'll see you in <laughs> May at NHRL. Oh. Oh, yeah. I'll probably go into every competition best I can. Heck, yeah. Love it. Love it. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks for having me. After the break, we'll return with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. Welcome back from the break. Time for Robots Around the World. This week, we're heading to the terrifying world of the near future, <gasps> where researchers are teaching robotic dogs how to open doors on their own. Aww. <laughs> the researchers train robotic dogs to paw their way up a wall, stand on their hind legs, and push an automatic door button, and then scurry through the door before it closes. Up until this point, it's been difficult to teach a robot how to both move and manipulate objects at the same time. My understanding was, though, it, there was such a long delay, it's because it took them so long to develop the little robot cookies to give them. Yeah, they do require treats to open any Little door. robot treats. <laughs> um, Chris, Chris Lindsay, uh, have, you, have you seen the, the YouTube video of this robotic dog? opening up the door because if you haven't it's only like 10 oh. seconds no you I, should check it out yeah i've seen it they like the way that it kind of like tries to scurry is a little um oh no yeah it's it it feels on it's a little bit like jack nicholson in the shining uh meets i don't know like some kind something from like the arachnid world that i would run away screaming from mm. So basically two terrifying things put together. It's, uh, it's it's like a zombie dog kind of like going up the side of the wall. Lindsay, have, have you seen this? You, you, you got to watch it. Yeah, I just I just watched it. Um, it's not cute. 
It's at all. It's not like a golden retriever uh, is, mm-hmm. you know, kind of bounding through the living room to press a button or something, you know? It depends on what's on the other side of the door. Maybe it's just his little <laughs> robot daddy. Miss <laughs> 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 little robot daddy. Wants a little robot cookie. I, I love. Chris, how uh, this podcast episode is going to go out to a thousand people who have no idea about your like uh, your Watson and Nessie lore, okay? And they're just going to be like, "What's a robot daddy?" <laughs> That's a great nickname. Actually, you were kind of a robot daddy, Luke, at at BattleBots for your team, Shredit Bro. Listen, if I took better care of myself, I'd definitely be a robot daddy, okay? Oh. Nicole, cut that, please. No, Nicole. No, no, you'll leave that in. Don't you dare, Nicole. Don't you Never do it. Never do it. (laughs) Like we doubted her for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) Here's what I'll say about the robot dog opening the doors. What are they going to... The robot dogs are supposed to bring you things, right? So let's say the robot dog's got a plate of cookies. They're going to bring it to you. They go to open the freaking door. They spill the cookies all over the place. It's never going to work. But you know what would work? If they were carrying a gun. If they were carrying a laser beam. If they were carrying some sort of weapon, that would just be strapped to their body. This is terrifying. This is bad for everyone. This is nightmare fuel. In in theory, then, by that logic, if we just start making uh, gun-shaped cookies, they could could bring their daddy some cookies. This is what I have to live with. <laughs> he thinks that he is uh, the daddy of every animal. So, like, if we're Lindsay, <laughs> Lindsay, no. If we're like driving down the street and like pass <laughs> someone walking their dog, he'll like make the dog a little voice and be like, "There goes my daddy." <laughs> That's never happened once. <laughs> Listen, uh, you know, there there were a lot of uh, mutant superpowers, uh, the ability to uh, control magnetism, uh, the ability to self-regenerate, uh, um, I don't know, uh, tapping into people's uh, subconscious. I just can immediately come up with a voice for any animal, and that animal happens to only have uh, one, one deity. And I'm that daddy. <laughs> well, that's about it for us today. We're going to go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, we want to thank Nicole for editing this week's episode. We love you, Nicole. And we'll be back in your feed next week with another mystery guest. Have fun at Robo Games, Luke. Thank you so much. I am stoked to uh, tell you all about it. And we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.